and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about the Iran disinformation project that was terminated by the State Department following a scandal last year. And we discuss a Twitter persona called Heshmat Alavi that's run by the MEK and has been retweeted by the U.S. president. I am joined by two guests today, Mortaza Hossein, a national security journalist at The Intercept, and Eli Clifton, a senior advisor at the Quincy Institute and an investigative journalist at large at the responsible statecraft. Both of them are joining me from New York today. Hello to you both. Hi, Nigar. Hi, Nigar. Um, so let's start by talking about the Iran disinformation project. Last year, we found out basically that there is a State Department funded project, very strange and unprecedented, I would say, that is supposed to be countering government propaganda and misinformation coming from the Iranian state. But instead, that project, and specifically its Twitter account, was was using a lot of resources and its time attacking Americans, American citizens, human rights activists, journalists, professors, and academics, and analysts. And most of the people who were attacked by this account were basically considered critics of the Trump administration's policy towards Iran. They had criticized sanctions. They had reported on the impact of sanctions and um, just not a strong supporter of this administration's hardline policy on Iran. And it, by the way, included the targets included Washington Post journalist Jason Rezaian, who was imprisoned in Iran a few years ago. And then this year, we wrote a follow up piece with Mortaza after we obtained FOIA documents from the State Department that gave us a behind-the-scenes view of how this project was working and how determination of Iran Disinfo happened last year. Mortaza, let's talk about that a little bit, the FOIAs that we obtained and um, the piece that basically me and you worked on together to give this behind-the-scenes view of the Iran Disinformation Project. Right. So as you mentioned, Iran Disinformation was a program that was contracted by the Trump State Department and essentially used as an amplification tool for the administration's very hardline uh, foreign policy towards Iran. In many cases, it was, in many senses, it was an attempt to uh, do a 180 on the more conciliatory take that the Obama administration had taken in the later years of its uh, of uh, its policy towards Iran. Now, Iran disinformation specifically was a program that manifested on social media. And as you mentioned, it was used to attack critics of the Trump administration's policy towards Iran uh, with the help of a very controversial contractor who, well, not named as a specification, but uh, essentially that they were trying to conduct uh, smear campaigns and character assassinations against people who were critical of the Trump administration's Iran policy. Uh, and in many cases, these were American citizens. And as you know, it's illegal to use government funds to launch such attacks. And the contractor who was involved in this was uh, found to be in violation. There was a very big public scandal. But as our FOIA story showed, Behind the scenes, the Trump administration 
had continued to maintain ties with this contractor in contravention of their public statements that they had cut ties. And this in itself was quite scandalous. And to this day, we don't know what ties may exist, but we do know that uh, their initial statements of breaking contacts with this contractor were erroneous. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to follow up on that, the project, the Iran Disinformation Project, was terminated last year. The $1.5 million of that project was basically taken away and reappropriated to a separate uh, entity. But the organization or the grantee, the implementer that was working on that project, kept being funded by the State Department, as our FOIA documents show, for months. They kept close contact with the State Department. And the project is, their project's and that organization are still running. Now, we don't know if they're currently being funded by the State Department or not, but what we know is that that organization and its other projects um, continue to be in in the funding realm of the State Department and continue to run as projects to this day. Let's also talk about the uh, bigger picture of how this is not only a single instance or basically a root uh, operation within the administration and how we've seen similar trends coming not only from the State Department, but from the Trump administration itself, Mortaza. Yeah, essentially, it's interesting. The Trump administration State Department has invested so much political capital in a very narrow range of foreign policy issues. Uh, one of them, obviously, is uh, Israel-Palestine. And the other is related to that the Trump administration's policy towards the Gulf states, a very transactional policy. And then finally, the third link in this chain is the U.S. policy towards Iran, which, you know, the Obama administration had expended so much political capital to negotiate the Iran deal. And the Trump administration had to go just as hard to reverse it. And in doing so, they've had to burn a lot of bridges and do a lot of uh, turn back on a lot of uh, individuals and institutions that they spent a lot of time building ties with, not just in the U.S., but in Europe and other countries which are party to the deal. So and I would describe this as a very ham-handed sort of approach. And it's employed a lot of, uh, as you saw in the case of Iran, this info, a lot of personal attacks, a lot of attempts to uh, smear people who supported what was U.S. government policy just a few years ago, as essentially, you know, potentially uh, in bed with the Iranian government and so forth. I think that it highlights, in a broader scale, it's institutionally very difficult for the U.S. perhaps to negotiate deals like this, uh, to conduct high-level diplomacy, uh, such as the Iran deal necessitated, because there's always a risk that every four years a different administration come in, which is extremely ideological, very crazy, and they could reverse in a very egregious and ugly way all of the previous uh, policy making of the predecessor administration, but including the uh, relationships which are necessary to conduct a policy like that, and also to do diplomacy sustainably in the long term. Uh, I think that the broader thrust of the Trump administration's policy has been to undermine trust in U.S. institutions, both domestically and also uh, its relationships with foreign powers, particularly mm. in Europe. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I encourage everyone to go read our piece. It's a pretty long piece, very comprehensive. We discuss what we have found in those FOIA documents. It's titled State Department Cut Funding for Controversial Iran Disinfo Project, but kept working with its creators. And this was published by myself and Mortaza for The Intercept. Let me bring in Eli here because there's another angle to this whole story, which includes a think tank here in Washington. And Eli, I know you have been following this angle very closely since the exposure of Iran Disinfo last year and also following up with the FOIA. Talk about this think tank, the involvement, and how uh, basically the coordination and the collaboration with the administration happened. Yeah, so a lot of what I've been focusing on has been how uh, nonprofit think tanks inside the Beltway have played a role in pushing the United States towards uh, military conflicts and away from diplomatic resolutions to um, challenges that the United States faces in the world. And in really foremost in, in that focus would be the Foundation for Defense Democracies, which is a obviously a Washington-based think tank that is nominally um, uh, bipartisan, although their uh, board and their uh, the administrations that they've worked with have tilted more and more toward the Republican Party in the past several years. Um, and what we saw in the FOIA documents was the Foundation for Defense of Democracies uh, having relatively close contact with uh, the State Department. And in particular, uh, what was visible was uh, um, an individual who was a senior advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies uh, being introduced to people at the State Department by other executives at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And in other cases, this individual connecting um, FDD staff with um, people at the State Department. Uh, further documents in the in the FOIA uh, documents showed this individual was listed as a prospective contractor on the Iran Disinformation Project. And two congressional sources told me uh, that indeed the State Department confirmed that this individual was a subcontractor on, on the project. Now, a lot of this was already sort of visible from, from watching just this individual and Foundation for Defense of Democracy's behavior on Twitter and on social media. They were a key amplifier of the attacks that Iran Disinfo was making on um, uh, American journalists and human rights advocates um, who the State Department perceived as being hostile, it would seem, to uh, the Trump administration's uh, abrogation from the JCPOA. Uh, and, and general hawkishness toward toward Iran. Um, but going back to sort of my the, the theme of a lot of my reporting and how this fits in it, um, I, I think what this really showed was how uh, a the foreign policy discussion, the discourse in Washington, is is very often shaped by organizations like the Foundation for Defense of Democracies that are quoted extensively in in, in mainstream media as as experts. Um, yet they were involved, and, and and a staffer there was was a subcontractor on um, what is a pretty vile project, one that was uh, mm. actively seeking to smear and attack uh, American critics of the administration, um, mm. Iran policy in this case. Mm-hmm. And um, what's interesting is that this project and the attacks, basically, and the smears on targeting of Americans and basically the administration's domestic critics, it was so out of line that the department last year, last summer when this was first exposed, took immediate action. They immediately suspended the project and within weeks of um 
deliberations finally terminated. But what, and I remember you were following this also in the FDD angle last year, but what would seem like happened last year is that the foundation was trying to distance itself and basically deny any kind of involvement of the organization or the staff with this Iran Disinfo project. Talk about that and how the new found, uh, findings in the FOIA shed light on some of that. That's right. The Foundation for Defense of Democracies last year, when it was pretty evident to, to me as well as to a number of other journalists that they were playing a role in the Iran disinformation project, uh, simply suggested that it was conspiracy theorize, theorizing to suggest that they had any involvement. Uh, and, and they downplayed the fact that their own website had an Iran disinformation project section that was republishing uh, the work that this senior advisor at, at FDD was producing for the Iran disinformation project. Um, on top of that, both FDD's tweets uh, were, were frequently amplifying Iran disinfo, and Iran disinfo was frequently amplifying them as well. So it was going both ways, it, it seems. It was pretty evident that they were playing a central role in it, and, and they were uh, really trying to, to hang on to any shred, it would seem, of plausible deniability that 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 they were, and that an individual who was a senior advisor with FDD was was actively working uh, with this project. Uh, and I think what these FOIA documents really illustrated, as well as the two congressional sources I talked with, were that um, FDD knew about the Iran Disinformation Project, uh, and this individual um, who was a senior advisor at FDD was, in fact, a contractor with the Iran Disinformation Project. So it, it, it kind of raises questions about the credibility of uh, these executives at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies who have sought to distance themselves from it, have tried to suggest that those of us who who saw what seemed to be evident, which was their involvement in it, uh, were, were simply engaged in, in fabrication or conspiracy theorizing when uh, now there are multiple pieces of evidence really, uh, I think, establishing beyond any reasonable doubt that, that FDD uh, knew that they that one of their senior advisors was working on the project uh, and, and indeed that this individual was uh, a part of that project. Mm -hmm. And I want to encourage everyone to read your piece, which provides a lot of details on everything that we're talking about. It's uh, titled FDD emerges as hub for online harassment against critics of Trump's State Department. And this was published both in the Responsible Statecraft website and co-published with the American Conservative. Um, and let me also make a note that, and this is one of the people we quoted, Brett Bruin, who was a former director of global engagement in the Obama administration, that it is illegal, basically, to use money that's been earmarked for foreign um, propaganda to counter foreign propaganda and to turn around and use it against American citizens. And he's also mentioned, we quote him in the piece, that the Global Engagement Center was designed to protect Americans and democracies from the threat of disinformation, but that um, under this administration, the center has failed miserably, as Brett Bruin said, and they have done little even as the danger of this information grew. Now, I want to talk about a different angle of this cyber warfare. Mortaza, I want to bring you back in. You wrote about an Iranian activist who wrote dozens of articles for right-wing outlets and is very much active on Twitter. And the question is, is he a real person? This persona, Heshmat Alavi, 
who was suspended for a little while on Twitter, but is back on and tweeting, attacking many of us, full disclosure. Talk about that, how you figured the behind the scenes of that account or project, if I may call it, and what's going on. Yeah, so as you mentioned, there is a very prolific writer and social media persona uh, about Iran, uh, who writes about Iran, uh, named Hashmat Alavi. And a few years ago, uh, I have many contacts from reporting on this former Iranian, this Iranian exile group and dissident group called the Mujahideen Ikhalq, or MEK. And I was told that this persona actually is not a real person, it's not a real, as they describe themselves, a Iranian political activist, but it's in fact a composite which is managed by this group, the MEK, and it's operated from their compound in Albania where they live in exile uh, with the patronage of the Albanian government and widely believed to be the support of uh, Gulf Arab states. And essentially, you know, this Hashmat Alavi been writing articles in certain uh, news outlets, mostly right-leaning. One of them, the major ones, was Forbes Online, like the relationship with Forbes magazine, but also the Daily Caller, Al Arabiya, and several other sites. And always pushing a very harsh line or encouraging a very harsh uh, U.S. policy towards Iran. Uh, issues like sanctions, which are very controversial, even among uh, opponents of the Iranian government. And, you know, it was determined, or I was told that this person is not real. This persona is being operated by the MEK from their compound in Albania, where they live in exile. And it had been publishing articles in uh, of array of uh, U.S. publications online. Most of the articles are published at Forbes, but there are also articles at the Daily Caller, the Federalist, Al Arabiya, uh, published in English. And, you know, it's pushing a very harsh line towards Iran, encouraging very punitive policies on sanctions and other things, which are very controversial even among opponents of the Iranian government. And mm. speaking to these former members of the MEK, they described how uh, they personally had been running this account. Maybe a team of people had been running it, four or five people with a commander and several uh, lower-ranking people according to this, the structure organizationally of the MEK. And after the story was published, uh, most of these publications uh, removed the site, removed the articles or placed notices on the articles indicating that uh, this individual, as it turned out, they never spoken to them, they never had any correspondence with them, they were not paid any money. And uh, essentially the MEK had gotten had been able to do a very effective uh, information propaganda uh, message out there by fictionalizing a Iranian dissident who would say what they wanted. And this message that they were purveying was very in line with what other groups also opposed to the Iranian government at present wanted, mm. uh, including the Trump administration. Now, interestingly, uh, one of Hashmat Alavi's articles actually cited by the Trump White House to justify their Iran policy. So ironically, they were mm -hmm. citing the words of an Iranian dissident, uh, who in this case uh, does not did not actually exist. Mm -hmm. And there was also this one instance that the president himself, Donald Trump, retweeted uh, this account, this non-existent persona. Talk about that. Trump has retweeted Hashem Alavi uh, at least once, and I think uh, maybe more than once now. 
And, you know, it's interesting. It's uh, the Twitter did not respond to for comment at the time about this account, but a subsequent uh, internal investigation, which was published as a news story at Al Arabiya, says that Twitter told them that they considered the Hashmat Alavi account, even if it's not a real person, uh, it's a, a legitimate use of the platform for pseudonymity. So essentially, mm-hmm. it does not technically violate the rules of Twitter for somebody to operate a composite account with a political message. And it's being used to purvey a certain narrative on Iran, which is endorsed by the president. And one thing very recently I've noticed in the context of the 2020 presidential elections is that the Hashmat Alavi account has been spreading mess, uh, information or disinformation related to specific congressional races in the U.S. and specifically against the Democrats. So mm-hmm. this is an instance of what seems to clearly be election interference, uh, but coming from people who are opponents of the Trump administration's Iran policy. Mm -hmm. I encourage everyone to go read your article about this where you discuss um, in more details. And I want to mention also one of the outlets that ran pieces by Heshmat Alavi was Voice of America, the U.S. government funded outlet. But then after your your piece and the exposures, they retracted the pieces and uh, gave a statement that they won't run pieces from this persona anymore. And also Twitter uh, eventually did not kick the account out of the platform but the account has never been verified with like a blue tick as a real person so um going back to eli um eli and you mentioned some of this in your piece Um, again i want to talk about the fdd angle um talk about the recent attacks on the qatar-based professor mark owen jones who also reported for Responsible Statecraft, how an FDD person was attacking him online. And then going back to what Mortaza was talking about, congressional races, I know you also mentioned um, how this other FDD angle, how they have been attacking Congresswoman Omar, Ilhan Omar, on Twitter. Tell us a little bit more about those two instances. That, that's right. I mean, Iran disinfo was, was was far from being the only instance of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies engaging in um, what would appear to be sort of um, uh, unacceptable degrees of harassment or, or smearing of, of critics of the administration. Um, in, in one example, there's a, yeah, as you were discussing, Marco and Jones, the Qatar-based professor, uh, was attacked by a, a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, uh, who also is a columnist at the Jerusalem Post. And uh, this individual tweeted more than 90 times all sorts of defamatory things about about Marco and Jones. But, you know, the gist of it being that, that attacking him, suggesting that he was somehow uh, compromised by by being in Qatar and that, he, and that Marco and Jones's criticisms of the uh, Israeli UAE so-called peace deal, um, which was being touted by the Trump administration as a diplomatic breakthrough, uh, was somehow um, you know less than what 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 met the eye, um, and and Marco and Jones had some criticisms of of this peace agreement, uh, as it were. Um, now these 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 harassment and, and abuse really that this person at FDD was throwing around uh, was flagged to Twitter and, and Twitter actually acknowledged to a number of the people who had flagged the, the tweets as abusive that, that indeed the tweets were, were, were harassment and, and hateful and abusive and, and violated Twitter's uh, uh, 
rules for, for, for behavior and conduct on their platform. There's been no indication that uh, this individual has been suspended or taken off the platform, um, and, and perhaps in, 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 in ways that may uh, sound familiar from Heshmat Alavi's case, um, they were, um, it doesn't seem as if any long-term consequences were, were felt by, by this person on, on Twitter or that Twitter seemed to up seemed obligated to uphold its 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 own rules. Um, and in another case, a, a the Foundation for Defense of Democracy's own Iran Project Twitter account uh, attacked uh, Congresswoman Ilan Omar, accusing her of being uh, uh, some sort of a foreign agent or an Iranian agent um, in Congress, which is uh, a pretty staggering um, accusation to make against uh, an, an elected legislator from uh, from a district in Minnesota. Uh, they ultimately took that tweet down. Uh, I'm not aware of them making any apology or explanation for having done that. Um, and, and again, what's so shocking here is that obviously anybody can go onto Twitter and make these types of accusations. But in the case of the Foundation for Defense Democracies, um, this is an organization that you know over a third of their funding comes from one of Trump's one of Trump's biggest funders, a fellow named Bernie Marcus, who co-founded Home Depot, uh, and it's an organization that that holds uh, a great deal of credibility. It would seem based off of the number of times that they're asked to testify before Congress, um, or the ways in which they are quoted in the mainstream media, always as a, a serious foreign policy think tank. Um, when uh, they have staff members um, who appear to be sort of crossing every line there is in terms of mm -hmm. uh, even Twitter's rules about about what's acceptable on their platform. It's kind of shocking. Mm -hmm. um, it is. And a lot of this is unprecedented. It's not something that the two parties do against each other that, you know, with a change of administration, you see it's a lot of this is just new uncharted territory that we've seen in the past uh, four years. Eli, I also want you to give us a bigger picture, and I've seen you mention this in your piece, of FDD's position, not just in relation to this administration, but um, the overall political spectrum of the country right now with the funders of the organization, the contributions, the connections to the Trump campaign, and um, eventually the White House. That's right. The Foundation for Defense of Democracies, uh, at this point, and as I was saying earlier, over a third of their budget is paid by one of uh, Trump's biggest funders, Bernie Marcus. In the past, they've also received funding from uh, Sheldon Adelson, who is Trump's single biggest funder, um, as well as Paul Singer, uh, a Republican mega donor who uh, initially was a never-Trumper until he donated a million dollars to Trump's uh, inaugural inauguration and has since seemed to have uh, mended his relationship with Trump. Uh, so what, what you see is really that uh, the funding of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, as well as the positions they take, are very much uh, deeply embedded in, in, in sort of the far right of the Republican Party or the neoconservative movement, as many of us would, would call it, um, and their uh, hold on much of the Trump administration's foreign policy. And, and their influence, the FDD influence at, uh, over the Trump administration extends into ways that, 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 that many find to be completely bizarre and, and again, sort of um, unparalleled. Uh, in one case, uh, a fellow uh, uh, at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies was actually placed on, into uh, the Trump administration's National Security Council under John Bolton. Um, and what was interesting was that um, it's not a big deal for somebody to go from a think tank to the National Security Council, but in this case, it would appear that the Foundation for Defense of Democracies continued to pay this individual's salary. So mm -hmm. FDD, which is 
in turn funded largely by one of Trump's biggest funders, uh, was actually paying the salary of somebody on the National Security Council. It raises all sorts of questions about what exactly is going on here. And again, and I think more importantly, it it should be uh, making us all sort of ask questions about what is acceptable conduct for a think tank in Washington? What are the expected standards um, that they should be working under? and, and is FDD really um, the reputable, bipartisan, objective um, source of research that they are so often mm-hmm. portrayed as? So, Marteza, we know that social media companies have also been under a lot of criticism and pressure for their roles in helping amplify disinformation. And this goes back again to the story of Heshmat Alavi, the persona, and the role that the MEK is playing in their newfound friend in the White House here in Washington. Talk about this bigger picture of online disinformation and how this administration specifically has been at the center of a lot of these discussions. Yeah, so it's interesting. If you notice, let's take an example of uh, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. uh, When he first... Uh, began developing his image in the West and before it was impacted by the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, he made a very prominent point of highlighting his relationships with prominent figures in uh, Silicon Valley, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, and others. And what this suggests to me is that, you know, these are private companies and they, certain states, certain powerful uh, private actors with resources can develop privileged relationships with them. And it just so happens that so much of our democratic discourse happens to take place in these private platforms. So if certain party or certain country is, is putting their foot on the scale a bit on a certain issue, they can, at least in theory and most likely in practice, develop some sort of preferential access to these platforms. Now, when you look at the issue of uh, Hesmat Alavi in Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia, Hesmat Alavi is, you know, no one's saying he's real. That's not, that argument is not being made. Uh, he's putting out very, very regular uh, information specifically geared at, that uh, aligns with the foreign policy interests of certain factions in the United States as well as the Gulf Arab states, including Saudi Arabia. Now, if this position were reversed and there were a fake Iranian persona, or sorry, a fake Saudi dissident uh, managed by individuals believed to have connections with Iran and who was gaining huge, significant platform, was using their social media persona to uh, depict themselves as a real author to online publications being published by them, and... Finally, uh, intervening in the 2020 election, it's very hard for me to imagine that this would be viewed or this would be effectively treated in the same way as Hashmat Alavi has been treated, which is that, mm. you know, some of his activities were scaled back in the publishing, but his social media presence has continued to exist. Uh, and I think that one can only... Uh, it's very difficult not to draw the conclusion that this is a representation of uh, very rich actors in rich countries, uh, undemocratic countries, uh, privileged relationships 
with these corporations in, Sil in Silicon Valley. And one thing I'll just add to that again is that for the Hashmat Alavi story that was done by The Intercept, debunking the existence of this individual, uh, Twitter did not comment. But for a story by Al Arabiya, which is a state-operated, Saudi government-operated news outlet, which did their own follow-up story about Hashmat Alavi after it was shown that he'd written for their publication, Twitter did give them a comment as per their article and said they told them this is, was deemed to be, after a brief suspension, it was deemed to be a acceptable use of uh, this sort of persona for political purposes, the pseudonymous persona. So that really tells you, you know, it suggests, you know, what kind of access that uh, can be had for those with the resources and the connections, uh, such as, for instance, the Saudi government has. N N N Go ahead. Is okay if I mm -hmm. jump, jump in here? Um, I, I think a really interesting, uh, really comparison point to what Murtaza is talking about here is that at the end of last year, and, and most people didn't notice this because it just isn't something that gets picked up in the media here, but at the end of last year, uh, Twitter did shut down a, a massive uh, Saudi uh, Twitter, it seems like largely bot network, and, and, mm -hmm. they, and they took 6,000 accounts offline, and they actually released the data of what was in those accounts and what they were tweeting. Uh, and by all accounts, this was probably the tip of the iceberg, but what what we were able to observe, um, and, and again, it didn't really get reported that much, but but I went through just the English language tweets, and uh, of which there were like 29 million. And in 35 of the 100 most retweeted tweets uh, uh, in these in this pool of tweets, uh, they, they, they contained the keywords Iran, Trump, Qatar, Yemen, or Khashoggi. In 26 of the 100 most retweeted English language tweets, they mentioned Trump. Um, and in the most amplified tweet mentioning Trump, um, they were uh, calling on him to uh, or celebrating his hardline policies against Iran. Um, and, and of course, all of this seems like it would be sort of an obvious thing for the Saudis to be doing, and we know that they do it. Uh, but I think it's very interesting that we really do have an example of the Saudis doing it. We have an example of Twitter even going so far as shutting them down when they were doing it, when they were trying to influence, it would seem, um, at least an audience of one in the White House, if not the broader American public about, um, uh, about their message. And it largely went unnoticed. Um, whereas just last week we got, um, without seeing any evidence, uh, allegations against Iran trying to influence the U.S. election, um, and many people took it at face value, and it got extensive coverage in the mainstream media. Um, doesn't mean it wasn't true. We just haven't seen the evidence for it yet. But we do know that at least in this in this case, at the end of last year, the Saudis were actively manipulating Twitter's platform, and they were doing so targeting Trump and clearly an American audience, or at least an English language speaking one. Mm -hmm. Well, and then the main questions here that still remain and we've seen by members of Congress being asked is what are the safeguards and rules in place to ensure that this doesn't happen again, meaning taxpayer dollars being used to attack Americans, to smear Americans and um, for State Department grantees and projects to be involved in such operations, even though the extent of all of this goes beyond just the U.S. government and we see other actors, including other states, being involved in all of this. Well, I want to thank you both for joining the Iran podcast and this excellent discussion, Eli and Mortaza. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. That was Murtaza Hossein, national security journalist at The Intercept, and Eli Clifton, senior advisor at the Quincy Institute and investigative journalist at large at the Responsible Statecraft. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast apps and follow on Twitter at Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye.